The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Now, my next guest is no stranger to the spotlight, having served as director of the FBI during the presidency of Donald Trump and then having the distinction of being fired by him. He was also at the 31st United States Deputy Attorney General during the presidency of George W. Bush, uh, United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York as well, uh, during the time of uh, President George W. Bush as well. But now he has turned his hand to crime rights. He has uh, become a novelist and has launched his uh, debut, which is called Central Park West. James Comey, good morning and welcome to our programme. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Now, uh, first of all, a change of life. Um, Was it the case that really you've done the law and you've been in the highest reaches of the law? What else to do? (laughs) That's a great question. I think it was more the the pushing of the editor of one of my nonfiction books to give fiction writing a try because he thought I might like it and and, uh, that it would work for readers. And so I gave it a try and I found it addictive. So yes, this is now what I want to do when I grow up. And there is another one, I believe, on the way after Central Park West. Yes, I've already finished the second one and I expect it'll be out next spring. Often at the beginning of a book, there will be an acknowledgement or a warning, perhaps, that any resemblance to characters living or dead is entirely coincidental. Now, given your career and, you know, as United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York and also your role as the seventh director of the FBI, there'll be loads of people with whom you've had professional contact saying, I recognize myself in Jim's book. (laughs) <laughs> and I will laugh and say, no comment. This is a book of fiction. Enjoy reading it. But of course, the characters are inspired by people I've known, and, and are some of them are a compilation of people I've known. But it's a crime novel, and I hope people won't spend too much time looking for themselves. Yeah. Um, but still, it is inspired by the, the people you've worked with and the people you've met. Um, there, In crime fiction, often the tendency is that you've got a cop uh, or an investigator who's maybe bends the rules somewhat. Your people, by and large, well, you know, Mr. Ruff and Ms. Smooth, we'll talk about those characters in a moment. Ms. Mr. Ruff might bend a rule maybe from time to time, but Ms. Smooth certainly would not. Yeah, he's not going to break the character Benny Dugan. Is not going to break rules. He's he's going to test their flexibility a little bit. But what I've tried to do is capture the my lived experience. In in my experience, the overwhelming number of investigators and prosecutors are people trying to get it right. Flawed people, like all of us are, but people who are trying to do it by the rules, by the book, and get to justice that way. And it's still very exciting. I, I didn't feel pressure to make stuff up when it came to what the people were like, because it was very exciting when they were acting the way I've depicted them acting, because these are based on real cases, real witnesses, real mobsters that I dealt with. And I I found it exciting, and I think the readers will as well. Mm. Now, when I've uh, read mob fiction and seen mob movies and so on, I, I wondered how much of this stuff was you know, made up, glamorized by the likes of Mario Puzo, who wrote uh, the original Godfather uh, book. Um, but the idea of a made man, for instance, you know, someone who is uh, admitted to the mob kind of formally, and that you couldn't have a made woman which I found intriguing. 
Yeah, and that it's still the case. It's a patriarchal organization where you're required to have, in fact, I think the mob actually has changed it, to have both of your parents be of Italian or Sicilian origin, and you have to be a man. And that's, that's the way it's long been. It's not what you'd call a progressive organization. But Puzo had a bigger impact on the mob than maybe he ever realized because his book and then the movie, especially The Godfather, shaped the life of the mafia in ways that people never fully appreciated at the time because so many American mobsters couldn't join the mafia because it closed its entry books for over 20 years, starting in 1957. And when the movie landed, that meant there were a bunch of really bad people who actually couldn't get on the inside. And so they saw what they saw on the screen and said, that's what it's like. And then they started talking that way, dressing that way, and acting that way. And when they were finally admitted to the mafia, Hollywood had shaped the mob as a result. So life imitated art um, rather than the the other way around. Um, in your book, and we, we feature a number of mob uh, characters in the book, there is the suggestion that there is an honour code. You know, by and large, they leave families alone. I mean, is there such a thing as an honour code? They call it an honour code. They fancy themselves as each of us is a uomo d'onore, man of honour, and most of it is nonsense. It, it's sort of like, I think there's a rule against fighting in rugby and it's honored in the breach. And so it, most of it is nonsense, but it's nonsense that they tell themselves quite frequently to try and find purpose in their work. There is one rule though in the American mafia that is actually my favorite and, and that they actually abide. They don't harm law enforcement or judges. And the reason for that is not morality. It's a, It's practicality. The state is so large in America that if you killed prosecutor or killed a judge or tried to, the state would crush you. There's no such rule in the Sicilian mafia because there's no need for such a rule. They don't fear the state in the same way they do in the United States. And so it, people ask me all the time, when you were doing this work, were you afraid of the people you were prosecuting? And the answer is no, because they really did adhere to this code that we don't attack, we don't threaten law enforcement. I was much more concerned as a prosecutor by those who were too stupid to realize that mm. it made no sense to come after an individual prosecutor because he or she would just be replaced by somebody else. The mob was smart enough to get that. And so it was uh, not a source of worry. Now, you obviously became acquainted with some of the mafia figures that you were involved in prosecuting. Um, what were they like? I mean, were they menacing figures in any way, or could they have passed for someone who's selling insurance? Maybe insurance. It would have to be insurance that led to sort of the dead eyes that I saw on people who killed a lot of people. And But they really did fancy themselves, told themselves this story that they were noble warriors and that they were worthy opponents, and I was just a worthy opponent. I mean, I had a mafia hitman I was prosecuting pass me a note in court when he read in the newspaper that I had gotten some recognition by the New York City Bar Association. And the note said, Dear Mr. Comey, I read of your award. It is well-deserved, sincerely. And then he signed his name. And <laughs> I thought it was a joke at first, but he was doing it because his sense of self was, I'm a warrior, you're a warrior. You know, there's no, we're just, we're, we're, we're sort of Athenians and Spartans. And of course, I didn't see it that way. I was trying to put him in jail for the rest of his life. But they really do cling to this notion that there's there's something special about their work. And the other thing that's really a little disturbing about spending a lot of time with mass murderers is 
when you're in a hotel room with them, the music doesn't swell, the light doesn't change. They're human beings with families, sometimes with you know, interesting philosophical observations. They're humans who have done something unspeakable, but it's this doesn't change the fact that they're human beings. In your time in New York, I mean, did you see quite clearly the development of the, the different mafias, the Chechen mafia, the Albanian mafia, the Russian mafia, uh, maybe branches of the triads from Hong Kong, the Chinese mafia? Did you see all of that? And was there no way to, you know, learning from mafia lessons to prevent it happening? Well, yes, I did see all that. I especially saw that when I got to be director of the FBI. It, look, there's a reason that criminals organize. It, it's a way to be better at, at making money through whatever your particular vice is or racket is. And so I remember one of my mob witnesses saying, you know, while you people are crushing us, there's a whole lot of people organizing. You don't speak their language. You don't have their fingerprints. You don't know anything about them. And there's no doubt that's true, that once the investigative authorities become aware of a Chechen group or a Romanian group or a, a group from Thailand, it takes a while to climb the learning curve. I think one of the lessons of the war against Cosa Nostra was that the FBI had to be faster and better, especially at the language skills, which allows you to understand what they're doing and attack that criminal enterprise. So one of the things we invested a lot in at the FBI was language analysts so that we could know what the bad guys were talking about. It took us a long time to climb that curve when it came to learning to speak Sicilian or Italian. Now, um, you, I don't know how you look upon uh, what's happening in Florida, what happened, the arraignment of Donald Trump. Um, you have been credited or blamed for giving the world four years of Donald Trump. How do you respond to to that? Because he was the man who ultimately fired you as well. Um, uh, an act of supreme ingratitude, given that probably the whole Hillary Clinton thing got him elected in the first place. Yeah, I don't, look, I don't know the answer to whether anything the FBI did had an impact on the election. I actually think it seems unlikely in, in light of the way the 2020 election went and tightened in just the same way in the last 10 days and whatnot. But I don't know. It doesn't change how I think about the decisions we as an institution had to make. I mean, I'm accountable for those decisions and I've thought about them a thousand times. And I still think of two terrible options. We chose the least bad, the one most consistent with the values of the FBI and the Justice Department. But the one thing was sure is Donald Trump figured out very early that I wasn't on anyone's team and that I hadn't tried to help Hillary Clinton or hurt Hillary Clinton. And I sure hadn't tried to help him. And I think that was one of the, once he realized that I wasn't a political team player in that way, my, my tenure was doomed, frankly. Mm -hmm. Did you sense that uh, much in advance of it happening? I did. And I was still surprised when I was fired, but I, I ought not have been. It seems obvious looking back, but I knew that there was an estrangement between us. He, he set up a dinner that I thought was a group dinner with me and other leaders, and it turned out to be just the two of us at the end of his first week as president, where he set up the dinner so he could ask me to pledge my loyalty to him personally. And I knew that when I just stared at him and didn't give him an answer and then avoided pledging my loyalty, that there was going to be a real tension between us. I actually convinced myself that that was good because it would keep him away from me and the separation the American people want 
and have long wanted between the president and the FBI director would be the result of that cold front. And it turns out I didn't quite understand just how furious he would be that I wasn't going to be part of his uh, inner circle in that in that same way. It's kind of reminiscent of what happened on January the 6th, where it appears Donald Trump gave Mike Pence the choice of choose me, Donald, or choose the con- Constitution. Yeah, that's his way of operating. I mean, that's why he reminded me so much of a Cosa Nostra boss. At the center of every mafia family is a single person, the boss, and everything is viewed through the lens of what are you doing for the boss? How are you serving the boss? Or do you have any loyalties other than to the boss? And Donald Trump tested a lot of people in that way, and most people uh, didn't do well under those tests, in my opinion, but some did, and and held to principle rather than bending in the face of this person. Um, you don't strike me as a vengeful person, but do you take any pleasure in his current legal difficulties in, in Florida? I don't. I mean, I think it's embarrassing for the country. It's good in the sense that it shows the American people that the rule of law still works, that the system operates to hold accountable without regard to your station in life, but it's still, it's painful that as a country that that we have to show that that's necessary and, and to contemplate the future where we may have a one of the two candidates for president be, I guess, potentially be incarcerated at the time he's running for office is just it just painful for our country. And it would be bizarre because uh, were he to be incarcerated, he would still have to be protected as an ex-president by the Secret Service. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I there's so many <laughs> unprecedented things happening. Yeah, and if you put any of that in a novel, your publisher would say, no, 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 take that out. That's That can't possibly be true. Do you worry for the future of your country? I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the opiate crisis, um, the political divisions, um, the, the, the problem with trying to get facts rather than opinion all the time, mainstream media being utterly fractured, Fox on the one side and others, and uh, CNN and maybe uh, CNBC on the other side. Um, it's a worrying time for America. It is. I don't worry. I worry, but I'm, I remain optimistic, in, probably for two reasons. One, I, I know America's history. We've been totally screwed up at many different points in our, in our national history. I remember when I was a boy, the country was coming apart, right? John Kennedy was killed in broad daylight. Bobby Kennedy was killed in a ballroom in Los Angeles. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, thousands of others. And the country was coming apart when I was a boy, and it, and it didn't. Lincoln liked to quote during the Civil War his Secretary of State, who apparently said, there's always enough virtue to save America. And then he paused and said to President Lincoln, but just enough virtue. And, and that's painful and funny, but it's true about America. We, we always hold on, and so we get better after each retreat. And our, our line is an upward sloping line of progress as a result. Mm-hmm. But that, that means there's going to be periods of retreat and pain and disorder. And then we'll recover and we'll be better. And then when my children are my age, there'll be some other period of pain and disorder. But America will endure. Mm-hmm. It's, you, the Irish people know it as well as any people on the earth. It's a wonderful, messy, challenging, and ultimately 
stable country that, that I'm lucky enough to live in. During your time uh, uh, in your various legal roles, but particularly as director of the FBI, um, you were uh, able to see, uh, witness some of the terrible uh, shooting tragedies that have happened in the United States. And in this part of the world, as you know, in Britain, there are quite a few armed police people visible on the streets, but the generality of the police force is not armed, nor is it in our country. And the idea of your constitution allowing everybody to bear arms, including, you know, automatic weapons, which are highly lethal, um, it's just so bizarre to us, and we can't understand why so many politicians don't get it. Yes, yeah, bizarre to me too. And I've I've grown up, I've grown up in that country, and I've handled firearms, and I'm comfortable with firearms, and I still don't understand the way in which so many Americans and leaders of Americans have associated their very identity with firearms. But having associated their identity with firearms, it becomes very hard to change the way they think about them. It's a problem that's going to be with us for a very long time because firearms, unlike yogurt or cheese, don't have an expiration date. And so I've tried to explain to people who, who don't know firearms in America well that even if we stopped selling guns in America today, 20 years from now, we will still have 360 million guns in a country of 330 million people, more guns than people. And so the problem that we face is it can be solved, approached at the margins, but in the main, it's not going to be changed, even if we radically change the way we think about firearm sales. So this is a complicated, painful problem in America, and it's made more complicated by the fact that a lot of people associate these long frame weapons, these semi-automatic AR-15s with their very identity. And that makes it really hard Mm. to talk about it in a thoughtful Mm. way. Um, One of the things that mystifies me is uh, the NRA representing the manufacturers of these weapons. I mean, in order to stay in profit, they've got to keep on selling and selling and selling. And it seems to me that you're overgunned at the moment. You'd imagine that everything would slow down for these companies and they'd have to think about maybe we need to make our money doing something else. Yeah, I would think so. But but they seem to find new ways to market fear and 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 convince people that they need the firearms. And one of the ways they do it is by saying, they're coming for your guns. They're going to try and take your gun. And that then drives people to say, well, I need a 13th and a 14th to protect my the other 12 that I have. And so it's a, somehow they managed to market fear and drive sales of their firearms. Look, the FBI oversees the background check uh, on gun purchases, the system. And I remember seeing the astonishing numbers when President Obama was in office because what they were telling Americans was, Obama's going to take your guns, so you better go get more now. Somehow they find a way to market, and um, yeah, I wish I had wish I had a happier answer on that. You must be gratified, though, um, with the the success of Central Park West and uh, uh, another one on the way. Uh, the career as novelist, and I, I suspect that you're enjoying this new life. But you must miss the FBI terribly because there's no question that your uh, retirement, forced by Trump, was premature. Yeah, cut. I mean, I would be. So I served for four years before getting fired, and I would be approaching my the end of my 10-year term in two or three months. And there's a lot I miss, but most of all, the working with the people in the FBI who are non-political, 
people committed to doing their work, not for the money and in the face of a lot of risk and criticism, but because they want to make the world a better place. It is really enjoyable, wonderful to work with people who are like that, and I miss that most of all. James Comey, it was a great pleasure talking to you this morning. Thank you very much for joining us on the programme. The book is called Central Park West, the debut crime thriller of James Comey. Jim, thank you very much for joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.